1: Welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host today on the New Books in African Studies channel, Ari Barbalat. Today, I am in dialogue with Dr. Harry Gamble. He is Professor of French and Francophone Studies at the College of Worcester. We will be discussing his new book, Contesting French West Africa, Battles Over Schools and the Colonial Order, 1900-1950. to 1950 published in Lincoln, Nebraska, by University of Nebraska Press, 2017. Harry, it's an honor to be in conversation with you today. So nice to be with you, Ari. Thank you. Thank you. I couldn't be more grateful. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers?
0: You know, I'll start with one big idea um you know as i got into the archives and and started learning more and more about um the history of, of french west africa um uh, you know i i came to see just how contested this history was uh you know hence the the title of my book contesting french west africa let me say a little bit more about that um you know it, it wasn't just that the moment of conquest uh was uh, filled with uh, uh, contest and uh, you know, violence and uh, unsettled moments. It was it wasn't just that the moment of decolonization brought with it lots of contest and struggles. It was that really throughout the whole duration of French West Africa from 1895 all the way till its end in 1958, it was it was filled with sort of a, a cascade of, of contests and controversies and um, and and that sort of prompted me to wonder you know what was it about this um, these encounters this um, federation that made it just so controversial just just so unsettled uh, and so that's what I wanted to dig into. Uh, with the book and, you know, schools uh, are a really uh, interesting place to start because they were so central to the uh, colonial encounter to so many things that happened. And yet, um, as the book tries to show schools, um, in many ways, surprisingly proved to be sort of also explosive sites of contestation. And so that's sort of a a
1: general canvas that I wanted to work on uh, in writing this book. What were Senegal's four communes? Can you explain their significance?
0: Yeah. Um, You know, and uh, these communes weren't originally going to be a part of my book. And as I got into this project, I found myself having to work backwards And um, these communes really connect French West Africa to the 19th century, even the 18th and 17th centuries. Um, Basically, they are coastal uh, outposts. Uh, They were coastal coastal outposts um, that uh, developed, especially uh, during the slave trade as uh, hubs where the slave trade was conducted. especially Saint-Louis and Goree Island. Uh, and then after uh, uh, slavery is abolished, the slave trade uh, is phased out during the first half of the, the 19th century, um, these outposts are going to develop and really take on a new life. Um, uh, France is reinventing its involvement with West Africa and is on the verge of starting into a lot of territorial conquest in the interior regions and um, these communes uh, are going to be staging grounds important staging grounds um, for what's going to become French West Africa uh, eventually and during the early Third Republic they are officially these towns these burgeoning towns are officially elevated to the status of communes and they come to have uh, institutions that are associated with um, the Third Republic, with Republican France, uh, uh, municipal councils, uh, an elected uh, member to the chamber of deputies, uh, mayors, things like that and the inhabitants of these uh communes uh called usually uh les origi- um, the inhabitants uh, start to accrue rights and um these rights um really uh start to uh build up over the late uh 19th century and right as french west africa is being conceived as a project a project built around colonial subjects, all these new uh, populations in the interior of West Africa that are being brought into this imperial framework. At this very moment, there are these rights-bearing populations in these uh, four communes um, that are uh, very uh, wary uh, of these changes going on. Uh, they don't see themselves at all as uh, colonial subjects that are going to be pulled into this new imperial framework and really set about to defend their position as rights-bearing inhabitants of these communes. And, uh, you know, I, I start the book out here because education is immediately a space where the originaire come into conflict with the colonial administration. Uh, The colonial administration after 1903 develops a school system for colonial subjects. And uh, the impulse of the colonial administration is to pull the originaire into this colonial school system for subjects. And the originaire who already have uh, a longer history with French schooling. Um, Schools in the four communes had been run by a religious uh, missionary outfit uh, by the name of the brothers of Ploermel. They had been, uh, 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 the four communes had 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 this sort of network of schools uh, through the second half of the 19th century. And uh, they felt quite attached to them. Uh, They were schools that uh, uh, provided access to different kinds of positions, to different kinds of social advancement, um, provided French diplomas, allowed some originaires to go to France to pursue advanced studies uh, at universities and other kinds of schools. And the originaire felt quite attached to these schools and and didn't want to be rolled into this new colonial framework. And so there were these pitched moments of contest where, um, um, once again, the colonial administration was trying to, to force the originaire into this new kind of colonial school that wouldn't provide um, French diplomas would provide very little in the way of uh access to advanced positions was really sort of a truncated limited education and uh and the originaire were, were clinging to this other model and and uh in the four communes were urban schools um, that really um, became this battleground as to who, could access these urban schools? What kind of curriculum would they use? What degrees would they grant? Would uh, French children be schooled side by side with originaire children? Would they be segregated? And and so that right at the uh, beginning of the 20th century, there's this uh, conflict in the four communes that really has everything to do with you
1: know, contesting French West Africa. What was the role of Blaise d'Aigneur in the history that you narrate? So uh, in the four communes, uh, uh,
0: originally uh, um, the French were able to um, ensure their control over these spaces and over their institutions. And little by little, Um, Originaire are going to make political inroads into French power structures. Um, After 1902, there's a Métis uh, um, uh, politician by the name of François Carpeau, who's elected to the French uh, um, Chamber of Deputies. And and that sort of uh, leads into, uh, during the uh, first and second decades of the 20th century leads into more and more Black originaire uh, uh, getting into politics in, in different ways. And uh, French authorities can see the writing on the wall. Their authority is already being tested by Metis, so mixed race uh, originaire, and then this rising uh, numbers of uh, Black. Muslim originaire getting into politics and and so uh lots of apprehensions that these four towns these four communes are becoming, trouble spots, uh, spots of contestation, spots that need to be uh, kind of carved out of French West Africa, um, since the rest of the Federation is being set up on very different uh, terms, right? As a space for colonial domination, a space for uh, controlling colonial subjects and not a space for rights bearing individuals. and all of this is going to come to a head in 1914 when Blaise, Blaise Diagne is going to be elected as the first Black deputy. Sen- uh, Senegal sent one deputy to the French uh, Chamber of Deputies. And Blaise Diane is going to break through in the second round of an election uh, and go on to represent Senegal. And it's going to sort of be a, a, a tidal shift, uh, if you will, in the politics of, of the four communes. Um, it's going to set off a lot of alarm bells in the colonial administration. Blaise Diagne is going to mobilize the originaire, especially uh, Black originaire, in new ways. Um, the uh, His party is going to seize control over municipal institutions uh uh in the for, in the four communes uh the uh, uh conseil colonial the uh, uh, uh conseil general rather the uh, local sort of uh, deliberative body uh and so a real tidal wave uh and uh uh and, and so there's is going to be this uh reflex on the part of uh, colonial officials to try to um uh push back the originaire to carve them out of the colonial project uh to make them sort of marginal to what's going to be happening in french west africa and the originaire are going to really uh, be uh, pushing in exactly the opposite way uh trying to make expanded claims and trying to extend their influence Outside of the four communes, to other parts of French West Africa, uh, uh, and you know uh, it, this is important partly because the originaires are concentrated in the biggest urban centers uh, of French West Africa: Saint Louis, uh, Dakar, and and uh, so it, they can't be sort of carved out. But uh, certainly the impulse of colonial uh, power structures is to uh, pen them in and, and to not let them extend their, their mobilization, their political energies. Uh, and so there's a big standoff that happens. Blaise Janya is a part of that. And uh, he uh, he uses World War One as an opportunity to first in 1915 secure the right of the originaire to serve in the normal French army, as opposed to in the uh, colonial units called the uh, Tirailleurs Sénégalais, that's in 1915. And then the very next year he uh, sees, uh, he's able to have the originaire collectively recognized as French citizens. And so all of this is because, partly because uh, the French are desperate for soldiers, and Janya is able to leverage that uh, desire to recruit African soldiers, uh, and and say, and then, be, uh, with the uh, um, the citizenship law of 1916, he goes on to effectively help conscript a lot of African soldiers, who uh, many of whom serve. Uh, in europe uh in, in world war one uh, um and uh so a, a real sort of uh breakthrough moment as long as world war one is ongoing um there's not that much colonial authorities can do to reverse the trend but once the war ends um, there is a real uh standoff that happens uh Dianya uh, and the originaire are seeking to uh, consolidate their gains. Uh, promises have been extended to the originaire and to others uh, that for having participated in World War One, they'll be given certain advantages. Um, some of those advantages had to do with schooling, access to an agricultural school, access to medical education. Uh, the originaire... Um, also try to use World War One as, as a time to say, um, we demand access to urban schools using the French curriculum and providing French degrees, access to the same opportunities as other French men and French women because we're French citizens. And so um, they make these demands uh, during the war and especially after the war. And there's an expectation that as citizens, they'll be granted full access uh, in, into the metropolitan style schools in the French communes. And uh, to, to, to sort of uh, uh, sum up, that, that moment closes down and the colonial administration uh, soon uh, certainly by the early 1920s, is trying to actually roll things back and to to force the originaire back towards mm-hmm. colonial schools that have been set up to train uh, colonial subjects. Um, and so the World War One Les Dianes is sort of um, uh, symbolic of these openings, this escalating controversy, but also at the end of the war, colonial reaction, trying to force the originaire back towards uh, African subjects. And schools are a space to, to see this happening.
1: Can you tell us about the Lycée Fedel Why is this school significant?
0: So um, the Lycée Fédère opens um, officially in 1920. And uh There wasn't a secondary school um, in general in in the colonies. Secondary education was was not a part of a part of the proposition. Secondary education was uh, really meant for Europeans at this time. And so uh, in many colonial settings, uh, secondary schools are are kept to an absolute minimum and uh, in Senegal, things were a little bit—I'll uh, just back up a little bit—a little bit more complicated. Um, a secondary school had been established in the 1800s um, and had been run by this religious order that I mentioned earlier, the Brothers of Puermel. Um, But with the founding of French West Africa, the secondary school is closed down. Uh, it was located—it was located in, in Saint-Louis. Uh, Senegal, it was closed down, Uh, and once again, as part of this uh, trend of forcing the originaire back towards um, uh, colonial schooling and away from French-style schooling. Um, But the originaire keep demanding access to secondary uh, studies. And so uh, little by little, uh, a school starts to uh, take root again. Um, but it's not until the end of the war after uh Blesgiania has participated in the uh in the war effort and has won these concessions. It's not until the end of the war that uh colonial authorities agreed to establish um, the lycée federme. Um and uh you know it's it's a big thing having secondary studies that lead towards the baccalaureat and, and to all of the you know professions that that uh, opens the door to. So it was a big thing. But as I dug into the material around the, the Lycée Federb it, it quickly became uh, clear that things were a lot more complicated. And uh, uh, what I realized um, is that um, it was a very hard sell uh, to open uh, up uh, a secondary school for Africans. And um Colonial authorities uh, on the ground in West Africa were totally against this. Um, you know, it, it didn't mesh with this whole uh, native school system that they were developing, uh, plopping a secondary school down in in Louis. And so there's a lot of resistance. And the way uh, the, for example, the principal of this school and, and other supporters of the school, got around that was to say that that really, this was going to be a school for um, French populations. It was going to be a school for um, Métis uh, uh, originaires, and that Blacks would be exceptionally admitted. And that even if Black students made it into the lycée fait d'herbe, um, they would be kept to the lower grades, and that very few of them would be allowed to go on all the way to the baccalauréat and and to graduate from school, uh, and 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 this sort of holds up over the interwar period. Um, in 1937, for example, uh, there's uh, the principal uh, uh, is defending the school, saying, "Really, we only we only graduate uh, four or five. Um, we only graduate four or five uh, originaire a year." Uh, uh, with the baccalaureate and that um, so there's a real uh, um, emphasis on keeping the numbers, especially the number of graduates with the baccalaureate, to, to, to very low. Uh, at the same time, you know, the, the lycée féder is also important because it continues to signal the fact that the four communes were exceptional spaces because in in the rest of French West Africa throughout this time period until World War II, there aren't any opportunities for secondary studies. And so all of the African elites uh, trained during this time uh, have uh, primary school degrees only. And so despite all the strictures that kept it from uh, bringing lots of... uh, originaire in you know, only graduating a, fruit, a few it nonetheless signaled the fact that the four communes remained somewhat exceptional uh during the during the early part of the
1: 20th century what were rural schools and why did they become so controversial so um
0: rural schools um are going to become a real uh, priority, almost an obsession of the colonial administration, uh, especially during the interwar period. Um, um, The colonial school system had always uh, been uh, a little more tilted towards uh, coastal communities, more established uh, coastal communities and um, the colonial, colonial administration, partly in reaction to all of the controversies that spun out of World War I, the colonial administration um, decided that really um, urban Africans, Africans educated in these uh, coastal communities represented a growing threat and that the school system was going to be expanded primarily towards the African interior and um, the idea was to invent a rudimentary kind of you know, minimalist school that could be developed uh, economically in the African interior. And that would bring uh, sort of a, a modicum of progress, um, you know, some knowledge of French, some practical skills, a smattering of, of knowledge in different subjects, uh, A modicum of progress to uh, rural communities, but it wouldn't uh, it wouldn't be part of any sort of um, promotion. It wouldn't allow people to imagine sort of careers in 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 other areas that really the rural schools were going to help Africans become uh, better farmers, better herders uh, or uh, better workers uh and so this is a real uh, focus especially uh during the interwar period um phasing back phasing back uh, uh or at least limiting the growth of urban schools and even limiting the growth of of regional schools and really pushing rural schools um uh and and uh this is done with the uh, once again the idea of um m- keeping africans uh back and making sure that any progress that is realized doesn't unsettle or or contest boundaries the con- colonial order and uh so this this schooling um is presented sort of as a breakthrough as as some, the way of the future is a kind of schooling that is what africans need it, it, it helps them lead their lives better. It doesn't uh, set them on new trajectories. It's sort of a, a preservationist logic uh, with a sort of a, a slightly modernizing uh, French layer that's brought in. Um, but uh, you know, Africans involved quickly start to see, just how unappealing these schools are, how little they open up in in the way, uh, how little opportunity they open up, what little learning uh, takes place uh, there, how unqualified many of the teachers are. Uh, These schools are are outfitted uh, quickly with uh, barnyards, with school fields, and so students find themselves spending much of the school day um, tending to livestock or uh, gardening, uh, 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 preparing fields, watering—all all these things that they hadn't gone to school for—and and so rural, rural schools become deeply unpopular, and uh, the colonial state actually has to uh, use pressure force to even. Uh, make sure that the schools are attended. Uh, populations are forced to sort of send send their sons, especially to these unappealing schools. Um, and, and it doesn't stop there, uh, because uh, uh, eventually this uh, ruralizing uh, drive extends even to larger schools located in small towns, and even eventually to Uh, an urban school in in the center of of Dakar. There's this uh, desire to outfit these schools with uh, barnyards and fields and to really emphasize to Africans, whether they're in towns or whether they're in the countryside, that uh, their position is sort of uh, more of a rural one uh, one that is in in touch with uh, traditional Africa, and and that um, uh, you know Africans can't be students the way Europeans can, and so uh, urban Africans especially uh, see uh, this trend towards rural schools, which uh, blossoms during the Great Depression and really extends across the 1930s and into the war years as a real threat to their advancement. A threat to their learning, a way to hem them into subaltern positions, um, and it, it leads to a, a quite a, a back uh, an um, an explosion of opposition, especially in in towns across French West West Africa.
1: What does your study contribute to the understanding of the famous École William Ponty? which trained so many colonial elites.
0: So there's been a lot of historical work done on the Ecole William-Ponty, which uh, was founded during the first years of the 20th century, and and really is the premier training ground for African elites, uh, uh, not the uh, originaire, uh, who have access to uh, French, uh, some access to French-style schools. But for other Africans, uh, the École William-Ponty is sort of the premier training ground. Uh starts out especially training African school teachers who are going to be so central to the colonial project and eventually uh, starts to train African administrative auxiliaries and then also african uh, medical assistance um uh so uh, uh it's a school that is um in uh a priority for the colonial administration because they really feel that it's uh it's it's there especially that they need to map out the trajectories and the boundaries for these new african elites that are being produced uh, um the school uh, is located um, on Goree Island, which is just off the coast of Dakar. So it's a an urban sort of long settled area. And, and these elites go on to uh, important uh, subaltern positions across the Federation of French West Africa. <clears throat> um, and uh, so this, the, this school has been the subject of a lot of historical investigation. Um, what my study uh, foregrounds is really, um, how the Ecole William Ponty is reinvented, excuse me, reinvented in the 1930s, um, basically uh, the school has been contested by colonial authorities you know, ever since world war one, the idea that we're, we're training up uh, Africans to too high a standard that, that we're, uh, we're breeding uh, rebellion that uh, we need something more modest. Um, and that's that sort of criticism has been in the background since at least world war one um, by the 1930s with the whole rural school movement, um, there's the idea uh, that, you know, uh, bringing students to uh, gore Island off the coast of Dakar, uh, you know, having them study in one of the four communes, that it's really taking them away from the African interior, taking them away from traditional Africa, taking them away from uh, agricultural livelihoods, and, um, we need to do something different and so um what i study uh, in one of the chapters of the book is how the uh École William ponty is is really completely recast across the 1930s um and I'll, I'll say what i mean um which is the the idea that um we need to map out Uh, different cultural coordinates for students, that it can't be about learning uh, French academic subjects. We've also got to build in an academic curriculum uh, and activities that have them orienting, orienting themselves more towards Africa. And so the idea of excuse me, creating a, a Franco-African educational structure, a Franco-African culture around the École-William-Ponty uh, takes root. Um, uh, that might sound all well and good, uh, you know, a balanced approach, a Franco-African uh, cultural orientation, but uh, in, as a practical matter, it meant uh, rolling back uh, academic levels. It meant constraining what was learned. It meant um, uh, building up other activities, for example, uh, uh, theatrical productions, uh, uh, African theater, the school became uh, uh, known for its theatrical productions that sort of were uh, a way of orienting uh, students back towards the interior, back towards their homelands. Uh, students started to do uh, in the 1930s summer research projects that had them investigating um, local themes in their home communities. Once again, all of that might sound you know well and good, but there were very uh, severe constraints put on all of this. They had to really reorient themselves towards a, a very sort of essentialized um, rustic rural Africa that was being imagined by colonial authorities as being sort of the correct the correct way to go. Um, and uh and so eventually this this movement to reform the école William Ponty uh went so far that uh colonial officials decided that this education couldn't be carried out in one of the four communes on gore Island. That it needed to be uh, done on the African mainland. And so an entirely new school was built uh, near Dakar on the mainland in a town called uh, uh, a village called Sebikotan. And a whole new campus was constructed there that included these sprawling fields, orchards, uh, workshops. uh, And the idea was to immerse Africans. Uh, African students, future elites in activities that they were going to be maybe carrying out as school teachers uh, in rural schools, uh, in fields, workshops, uh, and to make sure that their cultural um their cultural uh, 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 orientation was not a, a clear a European orientation, but they had that they were, uh, position sort of uh on the cusp of French and African worlds. And so uh I, I try to bring that out in one of the chapters of the book is this real reinvention of the école William Ponty and this transfer of the school to Sidi Cotan and this new campus. And and once again how schools were used to map out and to imagine the future of French West Africa, as as the French would have it.
1: How does Robert de la Vignette tie into your story?
0: So uh, Robert de la Vignette um, is an interesting person who uh, ties in directly to this uh, intense moment of reform that's happening during the 1930s. Um, he had been a colonial administrator in uh, the late 1920s in um, uh, in Upper Volta and I think in Niger. Uh, but it's really in the 1930s uh, that he becomes famous through books that he writes. And uh, the books have uh, titles. Um, that are evocative uh, of the time. um his one of his most famous books uh, is called Les paysans Noirs, uh, the Black Peasants, um, for example, um, from the <clears throat> from the early to mid 1930s um and de La Vignette by this time is uh, working at the colonial administration ministry. And he he's sort of a a publicist uh, working on colonial propaganda and somebody in a real position to uh, orient um, people's thinking about West Africa and how it's developing. And uh, what's interesting about not only uh, les paysans noirs, the black peasants, but another book that he also authors in the 1930s, which is called. Uh, um, Sudan, so Sudan, uh, French Sudan, Sudan, Paris, Bourgogne, Burgundy, so Sudan, Paris, Burgundy. Uh, But uh, these two books play on ruralist, peasantist uh, themes, regionalist themes that are so big in interwar France. Uh, The 1930s are sort of the heyday of. Uh, along with the Vichy period, but the 1930s are sort of the heyday of um, this uh, infatuation with uh, peasants and uh, figuring peasants as these iconic Frenchmen, these stalwart Frenchmen, the who are uh, are not going to be uh, sort of. Uh, unsettled by all the changes that the world is bringing on uh, whether you know class conflict whether immigration uh, uh, all the challenges to the french nation the peasants are sort of being held up as as um really the the uh this core uh, uh embodiment of frenchness and at the same time regions are also being uh, promoted, traditional French regions uh, being promoted as these sites of authenticity, these sites of of Frenchness. And de la vignette is going to be really important because he's going to try to extend these tropes to West Africa. And uh, he does it um, in ways that um, can seem somehow humane at times, uh, trying to have Help French populations to come to new understandings of Africans. Maybe they'll be more uh, fond of them. Maybe maybe they'll um, they'll they'll think more generously towards them if they can imagine them as peasants and imagine Africa as as a land of regions, like like many French people are imagining France. um and his book, so these are the themes that uh, de La Vignette tries to extend to uh, French West Africa through his activities. Um, You know, I talk about him in the book because it's a real uh, double-edged sword um, because um, De La Vignette is is really uh, proposing these uh, pastoralist, uh, harmonious, uh, traditionalist views of Africa, just as French West Africa is really being uh, subjected to uh forced labor uh, uh lots of the colonial state is is bearing down on rural populations in, in in more and more directly uh rural uh west africa french west africa has become increasingly uh inhospitable uh and and yet de la vignette is proposing these sort of uh uh, harmonious visions um, of how Africa can develop as peasants, uh, and and these sort of us somewhat of an, an equivalence between the regions of France and and the different regions of of West Africa, and and all this ties into schooling because it is is part of a way to deflect attention away from urban areas, the four communes. Uh, other urban areas in you know, near Abidjan or uh, in Daoumé, uh, really ac- across the the coast, especially and even inland Bamako, um, of an attempt to deflect attention away from the fact that the urban communities are developing and that Africa's future is not. Um, is not this pastoral, uh, or at least is not entirely uh, a pastoral future of peasants, but there are these other things happening. And so De La Vignette is part of this uh, interwar effort to really um, deflect attention away from these urban centers and all of the contests that are brewing there. Can you
1: explain map six on page 89? Why is this map significant? Can you contextualize it for us?
0: All right, I'm turning to page 89. Yeah, this is um, a really interesting map of this metropolis of Dakar in 1925. I use several maps of Dakar in the book. Um, You know, a couple maps early on to show just how tiny Dakar was in the middle of the 19th century. I think uh, maybe 1965, uh, rather 1865, there may have been only a couple hundred, I think 300 people estimated to be in Dakar in 1865. Um, That's before Dakar became one of the four communes. Uh, And then eventually Dakar starts to grow. And um, by 1910, it's overtaken Saint-Louis as the biggest uh town in uh french west africa and um and the town continues to just uh to mushroom to grow to grow uh, almost exponentially uh the uh the map here on page 89 shows uh a, a sprawling metropolis uh in 1925 this really the um uh the center of french west africa in so many ways the government general is located here it's the hub of economic activity in so many ways it's the place where the most uh, french expatriates live so it's this booming booming city that is is represented on this map here in 1925 i'll just provide a couple uh, statistics to back that up So 1910, uh, there were 25,000 inhabitants in Dakar. By 1926, the population has grown to 40,000. And then the boom really happens during the Depression years. 1931, there are 54,000 inhabitants. And only five years later, in 1936, there are already 93,000 inhabitants. So Dakar... Uh, has become this magnet, um, uh, drawing people in, um, and uh, you know, a lot of these people uh, newcomers to Dakar. They're in a way refugees, people who are fleeing the hardships of other areas uh, we just talked about in the African interior, and and seeking refuge, seeking opportunities in Dakar. And so, Dakar, in in so many ways, embodies. A certain future of, of French West Africa. Uh, and yet, uh, and I think this is part of the reason I included it uh, here in the book, this this map, it's also um it's also uh um something that the colonial administration is deeply uncomfortable with. This this urban draw. Um let's not forget that Dakar is one of the four communes that uh, many Uh, Of the inhabitants of Dakar are these rights bearing originaires. And so all of these people coming into Dakar are being exposed to uh, originaires who are French, technically French citizens, even if they're not always recognized with all of the the rights uh, French citizens have. Um, There's all this commingling happening and uh, new ideas that are taking root, uh, new demands. That are being born. And um, you know, we were just talking about uh Robert de la Vignette, we were talking about rural schools, uh, we were talking about the remaking of the école William Ponty. All of that is in a way an attempt to mitigate uh this incredible attractive force that Dakar has in this period, um, because um colonial officials are that worried about migration to urban centers and what it portends for the future of French West Africa.
1: In what ways does your book advance our understanding of the legacy and biography of Leopold Senghor, what new insights about his life and times are revealed in this study?
0: So Senghor is um, one of the figures I dwell on the most in this book uh, he appears in in several chapters. Um, In answer to your question, I'll I'll say two things uh, in particular. Um, The first uh, is that I really uh, try to, uh, in in one of the chapters, uh, think about uh, Leopold Senghor specifically in the context of the popular front. And let me just uh, say a word about that. Um, So in 1936, um, uh, the French left comes to power in a big way. And for the first time in the nation's history, the Socialist Party uh, leads a government uh, uh, along with uh, the communist and the radical socialist. So it's a tripartite arrangement, but this is a a really sort of a a breakthrough moment in French politics that uh, portends a lot of change, a lot of of newness. And and I try to really uh, use this frame as a way to think about Senghor a a bit differently. Um, When the Popular Front came to power in, um, in the spring of 1936, Senghor was teaching at a high school in Tours in France. And let me just back up to say that Leopold Senghor uh p- many people will know of his biography but I'll just give a couple of highlights. Um is uh, comes from uh from Senegal and is uh really unique in that he's able to uh Receive an education in Senegal, sidestepping the colonial school system. He starts out in religious <clears throat> or schools run by missionary societies, and then he transfers to another uh, developing secondary school in Dakar, and um, eventually graduates, wins all these honors, his his last couple years, and graduates in the late 1920s uh, from the uh, uh, lycée in in dakar he's uh, his senior year one of only two black students in his class his junior year he was the only uh, black student in his class and so we're talking about uh, a very exceptional experience that's made even more exceptional excuse me when he goes to france on a half scholarship and is able to Uh, uh, enroll at the Lycée Louis-le-Grand, which is located in the center of Paris and is one of the uh, uh, premier training grounds for uh, French students who are aspiring to go on to do uh, um, higher education in the grandes Grandes Écoles or in universities. And he enrolls there. um, Eventually, Uh, does not get accepted into the École Normale Supérieure where he wanted to study and ends up uh, pursuing studies at the Sorbonne and and, uh, by the mid-30s has completed two university degrees and is now teaching in Tours in a high school and has also become the first um, Black African to earn the Aggregation uh, which is uh, an honor, a competitive exam that uh, uh, technically prepared students to teach in high schools, but had a lot of prestige associated with it, uh, the agrégation. And uh, uh, Senghor has been, uh, throughout the early 30s, very instrumental, already networking with other um, other Africans, other uh, um Antillean students, American students, Black students in Paris. Um, Paris is this hub of expatriates from the empire. Small numbers, tiny numbers, but who are coming together in new ways. And and so all this is happening. Um, and yet Senghor uh, is is barely known. He's barely known. He started to write poetry. He's been involved in the uh, first elaborations of the Negritude Movement already in the mid 1930s, even though the Negritude Movement hasn't really been named as such at the time. But uh, the interesting thing about the Popular Front is that it really provides Senghor with this opportunity to thrust himself onto new stages. And so a chapter of the book, Uh, shows how he uses this uh, moment, the popular front moment, to really thrust himself on the stage in new ways. And he does this, uh, I'll just mention, uh, two two ways. Uh, The first is he returns to Senegal, ostensibly on a mission to study the conflicts over education that are taking place in Senegal, and especially the Senegalese outcry to the spread of rural schools. They feel like um, their access to advanced schooling is being rolled back. And Sen- uh, Songor goes to study this. But in the meantime, he travels around Senegal. He taps into the moment. And he's very much focused on taking the incipient negritude movement back to his countrymen. Um, and Uh, You know, one can imagine all the conversations he had. Uh, One of them has been recorded and uh, gives us a lot of insights into, you know, other conversations that must have taken place. But he's invited by Marcel de Coppé, who's the Popular Front Governor General of French West Africa. He's invited to give a public speech at the Chamber of Commerce in downtown Dakar, and you know this is an unheard of honor for uh, a young African to be uh, given this biggest stage, uh, especially in the epicenter of of the the capital city of French West Africa, and and Singor uses this moment to really unveil. Uh, his understanding of the negritude movement, and I'll just say a word about that. I think everybody listening knows what that is, but really this uh, idea born in, in, especially in Paris, um, born from displacement, uh, born from uh, the experience of of a France that didn't recognize um, Africans, that distorted uh, ideas about Africans that uh, held racist views of Africans. This uh, born of um, of a sense of disconnection from one's homeland, uh, one's people, one's tradition. Uh, the Negritude movement was was born out of a a rejection, a fear of assimilation, and a desire to sort of reconnect with roots, authenticity, uh, with um, certain kinds of of racial. Uh, racially located uh strengths and uh um identities and so this is the movement that was born uh in the in the mid 1930s in paris and that Senghor is going to take back to senegal and to really unveil at the chamber of commerce and uh uh you know uh i think a, a lot of eyes opened very widely listening to to singor hold forth um This ties especially into my story because uh, one of the things Senghor does is to try to translate the negritude movement to the realm of educational policy. And uh, this is sort of a a dicey enterprise at best because, um, as we've discussed, many... West Africans, especially many Senegalese, are deeply uncomfortable, uh, even resentful of the reformist uh, trends that have been taking place, that have been dialing back academics and uh, pushing Africans to do more practical education, more agricultural education, taking books out of schools uh, cutting students off of avenues towards professional advancement. All of this is happening. Uh, And so, but Senghor, because we're in this uh, special moment, this popular front moment where, you know, the left is in power and and he imagines that really there are new openings and opportunities and that this sort of Franco-African culture that's been, Proposed by colonial authorities could be sort of repurposed. And uh, anyway, on the stage of the Chamber of Commerce in downtown Dakar, he proceeds to sketch out uh, a school, a school system, a, a set of policies, whereby. Africans would, would really have a sort of a, uh, a dual education, you know, uh, be oriented in very significant ways towards African subjects uh, that he defines. He uh, at, you know, at the same time, uh, there would be study of more traditional French uh, subjects. So this sort of bifurcated school system, he uh, expresses his openness and even encouragement for education in African languages. This is sort of new at the time. Uh, colonial officials are, you know, starting to be a little bit receptive to this as part of the rural education push. Uh, uh, Educate, but uh, certain many Africans view this very suspiciously as a way to roll back education um, by by reducing the, the the role of French and but. He's on stage and he he really tries to map the negritude movement onto educational policy, and um, and uh, is uh, makes a real impression. You know, many many African elites do not agree with this; they think it's dangerous. He's playing into the hands of colonial officials by uh, you know proposing what he's proposing, um, but he. Uh, unveils the, his idea about uh, a franco african education uh, and uh, and about and the sort of under, underlying idea is that africans need to um build from their own foundations they need to um uh follow their own uh inspiration and genius yes they need to uh you know learn uh technical subjects and, uh, they need to study European subjects, but they need to do it in such a way that they don't get, um, pulled onto trajectories, pulled into futures that are not theirs. And so this really powerful moment of openings, um, and once again, uh, Senghor is trying to, uh, put a progressive spin on this as this is, this is really, uh, progressive education. And many of uh, his fellow uh, African elites are are very dubious about this. They think this is playing into sort of reactionary thinking on the part of the uh, colonial administration.
1: Can you describe the significance of Usman Sose? Can you comment on the significance of his novels? Karim, Roman Senegalais, and Mirage de Paris.
0: So, um, Ousmane Sausset, um, his trajectory runs very parallel to that of Senghor. Um, He uh, graduates from the Ecole William Ponty in 1928, and then um, studies for the baccalauréat on his own, and ends up passing the the baccalauréat uh, in 1931, and then going to France on a scholarship, Um, that he wins from the colonial administration, but the scholarship forces him to study um, uh, at uh, a veterinary school outside of Paris. And so he doesn't have access to um, the elite uh, centers of higher learning that in Paris that Senghor does. But the two of them cross paths uh, repeatedly and are really part of the same network in Paris during this time and really are both involved uh, at the ground level with the the negritude movement. Um, you know, uh, so say is important um, because you know you mentioned the the two books that he published in the 1930s, uh, Karim, and then two years later, um, uh, two years uh, two years later, uh, Mirage de Paris. Uh, uh, you know these are some of the very first uh, books written in French. Uh, novels by uh, African black African authors. Uh, and so uh, very significant books that uh, depict um, debates, hesitations that are going on among African elites about the cultural position, their cultural position and their cultural orientation and the, the future of French West Africa. What should it be? How should we frame it? Um, how should we pursue it? Um, and Karim, uh, the first of the the two books, uh, talks about sort of the, how disorienting it is for for somebody uh, a, a young man to come of age and then to travel to Dakar and to be sucked up into the sort of the whirl the whirlwind, uh, all the new the new experiences and and questions that Dakar represents, and what does it mean in terms of identity and and the future. Uh, And so that's Karim, and then Mirage de Paris is set in Paris, largely, and and similarly as a a young uh, Senegalese who's in Paris and who's sort of uh, pulled into the disorienting, um, almost kaleidoscopic nature of Paris in 1931. It so happens that the colonial exposition is going on, and they're... uh, it's a very layered, complicated time and, and 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 both books depict these young elites that are trying to sort out, you know what are what should our cultural coordinates be? What should the way forward be? And it's 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 important uh, for, for my book because uh, Usman Sose comes back uh, to Senegal at the very time Sangora does um 19, uh, uh and he gives a similar speech uh uh at the chamber of commerce in Dakar and unlike uh, Senghor who's really uh, about uh thinking about uh, cultural authenticity and thinking about um you know negritude and what what it means so say uh has decided that what he calls cultural métissage, So cultural blending is the way of the future. Uh, and that that's the sort of uh, the way societies will have to progress. You know, that's just the reality of the world. It's uh, the future is going to be more and more métisse, more and more blended, and so African cultures and French cultures are going to just uh, have to have to be blended. And and so so say has this very open ended idea of blending uh, métissage, and is is very resistant to uh, Senghor's more determined approach of uh, introducing negritude and really. Um, this uh, an Afrocentric, uh, a more Afrocentric approach to education and to cultural identification. And so, so say, Se and Senghor already in 1937 represent, uh, different positionalities that are being staked out, uh, in the community of African elites.
1: How does your book advance our understanding of Vichy France?
0: So one of the chapters of the book, um, focuses squarely on the Vichy period uh, in French West Africa. Um, We now know uh, that the Vichy regime and its ideological program of renewal, so-called renewal called the national revolution, we now know through lots of scholarship that's been done by too many people uh, for me to name here, especially perhaps Eric Jennings, uh, that the national revolution was exported around the empire uh, to different parts of of the empire that remained uh, in the orbit of the Vichy regime. Um, um, So this has been talked about even in the context of French West Africa. Uh, Ruth Genio has written a book uh, on that. Um, what's, what's less known and what uh, I tried to really dig into in my chapter on this period is how did African elites respond to this very particular moment when colonial authorities are importing this essentializing, racializing um, rhetoric about Frenchness, about Africanness, about authenticity, about roots, about uh, all of the above, and you know, how did Africans respond to this program that is rolled out uh, after uh, after the summer of nineteen forty? And uh, and so I happened on to this um, this controversy that erupts in the pages of a weekly publication. Um, called Dakar Jeune, which uh, basically there's a newspaper, one of the only remaining newspapers that hasn't been censored out of business called Paris Dakar. And Dakar Jeune is a weekly supplement that's put out. And uh, Dakar Jeune starts um, as kind of as a way to occupy uh, African elites during a time when uh, French authorities are worried about African elites and their allegiances, uh, you know, uh, uh, already French Equatorial Africa has defected, um, the British are challenging uh, French West Africa, uh, a lot, there's so many different allegiances that are available and French authorities are really worried about um, uh, the allegiances of of African elites in, in French West Africa. And so this is kind of uh, this this uh, survey of opinion is is launched to kind of uh, occupy people's minds as it were. Uh, and, and the question that they throw out there is, um, what do you think about the the cultural advancement of French West Africa? What should it be? what What should the Federation's future hold uh, culturally? So the idea is to sort of bracket off politics and let's let's get people talking about culture. Um and what happens is really uh, and and I uh was fascinated just to read all of the installments. I was able to piece most of them together. Um uh was this explosive debate among uh French educated West Africans, many of them graduates of the Ecole William Ponty, not all. Um and uh, you know, basically it, uh there were two schools of thought and lots of sort of shadings after that, but two two main schools of thought. But, you know, on the one hand, you had uh Usman Sose, who was involved in this uh survey and who wrote several articles, who who, who says really, you know. Let's not play into the hands of the colonial administration. Let's let's not um, box ourselves in with essentialisms. Let's be open to the world and let's uh, think strategically um, about how to educate our educate ourselves so that we can um, advance and 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 uh, and take on as many positions of authority as possible. Um, so, and, and he gets quite uh, an audience, Ousmane Sose with his arguments and other people, you know, uh, add their own voices to the debate. But on the other side are people who really reappropriate uh, the rhetoric of the national revolution. Uh, and uh, I'll mention just uh, Mamadou Dia, who uh, is uh, at the time a, a school schoolteacher uh, in Saint-Louis. Who has managed after many tries to, to pass the Baccalaureat. So he uh uh he's um, in one of the four communes, and he uh really latches on to some of the propositions that Senghor has brought back uh in 1937 when he came home during the Popular Front. Uh and uh only now Dia goes even farther and, and says, really, you know, it's it's about it's about um. It's about reclaiming uh, everything that's African. It's about building on our own foundations. it's about uh, ridding our culture of impurities. it's about being ourselves it's uh, and and so the real sort of turning away from French influences and uh, all of this is happening in the in sort of um, the context of a debate about cultures. but given what we know about, you know, political censorship, and you couldn't even publish about politics. It takes on all of these political overtones, and uh, Mamadou Dia and his camp really, uh, you know, repurposing the National Revolution start to imagine uh, a French West Africa that has been a uh, seemingly sort of uh, that would or would eventually be uh, sort of rid of French uh, importations and would return to sort of its authenticity. And so all of this takes on such uh, an energy and generates so much publicity and and interest that uh, French officials eventually get scared and realize that the debate has gotten completely out of control. And that uh, really that uh, the national revolution is not driving either side of the debate, that Africans have moved on to their own conversations and you know, it was fascinating for me, not only to think about the real challenge that this represented at this tenuous time in the history of, of French West Africa, sort of a, a real challenge to colonial authority, but also just the fact that in this uh, moment that we understand to be one of the most oppressive uh, imaginable, um, Africans are, are carving out space to hold their own debates and really are bracketing off the French. And and so that was one of the the real interesting insights I had into this particular moment in French West Africa.
1: Can you explain the importance of the Brazzaville Conference? Can you contextualize its consequences?
0: So the Brazzaville Conference uh, happens in the early part of 1944. And uh, I'll just take a step back and say that um, France's African empire uh, and its empire more generally had been deeply drawn into the war. uh, And uh, the fact that so much of the empire had initially sided with the Vichy regime um, and yet uh, growing numbers of locations uh, rallied to the Gaullist, uh meant that the empire was was deeply divided and allegiances and factions uh, were were very uh diverse and and so the Brazzaville conference uh is an attempt to uh regain some sort of control over the situation and to project some kind of confidence a forward looking confidence about the future and France's fitness as a colonial power, looking into the future. Um, so that's that's the general uh, context. Um, um, it's a significant event in the history of uh, colonial education, and and I'll say a little bit more about that. Um, uh, there's a real realization that. Um, the future of French West Africa cannot be taken for granted. Um, opposition to empires is rising. Uh, France is called is being called on to justify, you know, why it should be uh, should remain a, an imperial power, and um, and and there's a sense, a real new uh, sense among French officials that. Um, educating Africans has to be a bigger part of that. Um, Despite all of the rhetoric surrounding colonial education during the first four decades of the 20th century, um, fewer than one school-aged child in 20 uh, is attending a a colonial school at the end of the the war. Um, uh, The French language uh, remains thin uh remains uh, uh the language of elites but most uh of the populations in french west africa are not french speaking and and so there's an idea the, the idea that schools need to be put to new uses as um as a glue to hold together the uh the federation and to project it forward and so um, that's one of the things, this, this commitment to mass education that comes out of the Brazzaville Conference, a real commitment to having uh, education be solely in French. Another part of the, 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 this glue idea. Uh, we can't have uh, any other uh, languages creeping in. French is going to be the glue. And so that's, uh, 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 that's stated uh, quite clearly at Brazzaville. A new focus on girls' education. Girls' education has in many ways been uh, somewhat of an afterthought um, and only gets going uh, slowly. And and there's a real lag compared to boys' education. The Brazzaville Conference calls out this imbalance as being potentially uh, uh, fatal uh, for the future of of French West Africa. So those are uh, some of the things that that come out of it. Maybe more closely related to the subject of my book, um, one of the things that I'm most interested in are all the hesitations that are still there. Um, You know, the title of my book, Contesting French West Africa, where, you know, Gaullists are not even united uh, themselves on what the future of French West Africa should look like and how schools should be organized to create that future. uh, rural schools, for example, which have been so discredited in the eyes of, of most Africans, are still defended by some uh, Gaullists uh, at the time of the Bra- Brazzaville conference. It's only uh, slowly uh, during the years directly after that rural schools are are uh, discarded as being uh, impossible to carry forward just because they never they never won over African, uh, over Africans. They're, they've been broadly rejected. They have sort of a, a backward-looking focus and their modernizing potential is is minimal at, at best. Um, and yet the Gaullists are not neatly aligned behind the need to move beyond rural schools. Uh, and the last thing that uh, you know, I, I get into quite a bit in, in the book is um, secondary education, which is going to be sort of a novelty of the World War Two moment, this realization on the part of the French that we can't go on confining Africans to primary level education. You know, uh, we need to start developing a network of secondary schools. Um, This is part of this new modernizing vision that French authorities feel called upon to to develop. And yet, Gaullist officials, once again, are very conflicted over this this proposition. Um, Many uh, cling to the idea that secondary education is somehow meant for Europeans, that, uh, yes, we can allow exceptional Africans to move on to secondary education, but in general, it's it's for Europeans, and so that uh, the uh, secondary schools that exist in Saint-Louis and Dakar and the new ones that are being created in other places, Abidjan, uh, that these should be European spaces uh, primarily. That idea hasn't been discarded. And um, French authorities are especially worried because in France, um, the secondary school system is opening up in new ways to uh, new populations. It had been largely reserved for children of bourgeois uh, backgrounds, uh, and, and during the post World War II moment, there's this movement towards dem- democratization, um, making it a uh, secondary education uh, a normal thing for many young people. And uh, Gaullist officials are really worried about what this would mean in French West Africa if uh, we opened up the secondary schools more broadly to Africans. And so, uh, I try to bring out in this part of the book just how how uh, how how many hesitations still clung to this gaolish moment.
1: How does your book contribute to our understanding of the overseas citizenship that African populations won in 1946?
0: So, um, you know, in in, Fr- in French West Africa, there's the precedent of the uh, originaire who win citizenship in 1916. And as we've discussed, um, that changes their situation marginally. Um, But in many ways, they're not recognized as full French citizens. Uh, They're kept in the status of second-class citizens uh, until the end of World War II. And so this is very much in the minds of uh, West Africans, as all of the populations of French West Africa, of French Africa, are um, win, win citizenship in May of 1946. And the sponsor of that legislation, Lamine Gay, is actually an originaire who had studied the case of the originaire and their quest for citizenship and, and quest for rights. And so these two laws, the 1916 law and the 1946 law, are, are very interrelated. And uh, and so, um, so West Africans are very uh, doubled down on not only being declared to be citizens, but also enacting citizenship. What does it mean to enact citizenship? Um, I'll just give one more example, you know, in, in the French uh, Antilles, the old colonies, you know, populations there became citizens in 1848. And, and yet there too were kept to sort of a second class citizenship all the way to the end of the Second World War. And so this idea of a second class citizenship, of citizenship that needs to be enacted, uh, uh, needs to have teeth in it. Is very much in the minds. And and education is is sort of a a very concrete area where um, that needs to happen. You know, can you be a full citizen uh, if you're not uh, granted access to schools for citizens, schools that open up new possibilities, secondary education, higher education? Um, And yet in 1946, when this law is past the school system in French West Africa is still very much a colonial school system built for french uh, colonial subjects and and so uh the focus uh during the late 1940s is very much on closing that gap and on um you know as as frederick uh, cooper has has shown in his work on using the citizenship as as a lever as a wedge to really pry open Uh, things and try to extract and enact as many changes as possible. Uh, And uh, Senghor is going to be a big part of this. He's going to come out of the war uh, chastened uh, and feeling like uh, actually rural schools, actually the school reforms of the interwar period were were, were dangerous because they, they cut us off from the 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 possibilities of citizens, the rights of citizens, the opportunities of citizens. And so Senghor is going to, he's really let people know that he's changed his position and he's now for um, bringing into French West Africa a school system like that of France. Um, and uh, he's going to have a lot of support for that. He's going to use that as a political platform. Uh, and at the same time, french reformers uh some french reformers are also getting behind this idea that we can't have african citizens across french west africa and not provide uh, a french educational system and so during the late 1940s and into the 1950s there's a, a real sea change and uh Uh, Rural schools are going to be abandoned. Uh, Adapted education is going to be African, uh, all the uh, colonial education of old is going to be uh, traded in for um, schools that are going to be very much cast in the metropolitan model. Um, This is going to take a lot of time. It's going to be very incremental. Uh, Lots of legacies of the colonial school system that are going to live on, are going to live on beyond independence. But um, uh, a campaign is launched, led by Senghor and also by a French reformer, uh, colonial official, educational official by the name of Jean Capel to uh, turn the school system Uh, in French West Africa into sort of an extension of the metropolitan French school system. Um, And this comes to a a little bit of a a culmination in 1950 because at that point, um, uh, French West Africa is declared officially to be a school district, an academy of the French national school system. Uh, Once again, there are lots of lags, lots of disparities between education in French West Africa and in France. But on paper and in terms of the the norms, the goals that are being pursued, we're now operating in a metropolitan sort of with a metropolitan mindset. And and so um, to say that, getting back to the question of citizenship... um, uh, we need to acknowledge both. Citizenship was leveraged to help equip the, the uh, uh, territories of French West Africa with metropolitan style schools. However, there was also incredible, um, once again, incredible lags and incredible uh, leftovers from all that had come before. Uh, And and so the quest to uh,
1: be full citizens was ongoing. How does your book advance our understanding of bureaucracy and of colonial bureaucracies in particular?
0: Um, Towards the end of the book, uh, you know, I I think a lot about this. um, um, You know, for many of the decades uh, of the 20th century, all the way to the World War II the colonial administration has authority over all aspects of administration. Um, And so schooling falls directly under the purview of the colonial administration. Um, And that administration is being built up, is being rationalized. uh, And um, and with World War II, this is gonna start to change. Uh, And metropolitan French administrations are going to start to play expanding roles in French West Africa. Um, They had been sidelined and now experts from different metropolitan administrations. Officials are going to be cycling in to uh, the bureaucracy in French West Africa. And uh, uh, this is going to lead to a lot of soul searching and nostalgia quite frankly among many colonial officials who liked the way it was when they called the shots and they had their own sphere of activity and influence and didn't have to factor in um, didn't have to factor in uh, metropolitan officials and metropolitan administrations Um, but World War II unsettles all that and there's a lot more uh, back and forth, and we definitely see this in the field of education. Uh, the Ministry uh, of Education, the National uh, Ministry of National Education, as it's called in France, is going to take on expanding roles. Uh, Capel, who comes to lead reform educational reforms in French West Africa in 1947, he's a he's a pure product of the uh uh education ministry in france and he's going to try to introduce all these practices and norms and structures that are those of um the french education ministry and and capel is going to be really caught up in in lots of tangles with colonial authorities who uh once again feel that this is just intrusive we're not respecting precedence um the colonial sphere is not a space for metropolitan education, and, and so these rivalries between different administrations. Um, um, sometimes we think too easily that you know there's a colonial state, and and uh, and and we give too much uh, coherence to that, and and certainly looking at. 1940s and 1950s French West Africa. We need to really tease tease apart um, the rivalries and the different uh, affiliations of administrators and bureaucrats. Um, but the 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 trend line of the story is that France's Ministry of National Education is is moving in, um, and uh, they're being really asked asked in by a lot of Africans who are much more confident in France's educational ministry than they are in the colonial administration. But um, the uh, French uh, national ministry, education ministry, also sort of has its own agenda, has its own sort of corporatist understandings, uh, has its own um, investment in, quite frankly, expanding its operations overseas. And, And so, Um, uh, I try to tease out uh, these rivalries that we can see coming into focus Um, ultimately it's the uh, French Ministry of Education that uh, has a more lasting influence.
1: How does the study of education policies in French West Africa contribute to our better understanding of decolonization and post-independence West Africa?
0: So the fact that this integrationist uh, moment happened so late. It wasn't until the late 1940s, the 1950s that French West Africa is going to be integrated into the French national educational system. It happens so late um, that it's really still ongoing during the period of decolonization. Um, um, We were talking about uh, leveraging citizenship to win full educational rights. Well, that's still ongoing during the period of decolonization. Um, And yet, um, and these these, uh, ties, these very, very deep ties between France's Ministry of National Education and the uh, educational departments in the various West African territories, these have just been ramped up. And and so um, in in terms of personnel, in terms of networks, in terms of norms, um, the formal uh, empire ends, uh, French West Africa, uh, is, uh, disbanded in 1958. The African, uh, territories therein become independent in 1960. Um, but these, all of these linkages, all of these deep, um, uh, bureaucratic, um, educational linkages are very much intact. And because so much of the post-war struggle was on equality, was on opportunity, uh, was on citizenship, very little thought has been given in 1958 or 1960 to, what does it mean to fashion a national educational system for, let's say, Senegal or guinea what does that look like what what are its uh, requirements um and and so a real lag has, has settled in uh and and that and that um those continuities those deep continuities are really going to play out uh, across the 1960s and into the 1970s and it's only very progressively very progressively that uh, new African nations are going to um, question these arrangements that have been, that were worked out during the last decade or, or decade and a half of empire, arrangements that were perpetuated by cooperation agreements uh, between France and the new newly independent African nations uh, uh, that perpetuated this, this these imbrications of educational systems it's only slowly and by degrees that all of that is going to be brought back into question so one last thing i'll I'll just say about uh some of the legacies is uh you know education was conceived of as uh for for a long time as a federal uh enterprise in french west africa and and dakar was such a magnet and Uh, 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 students really cycled around this space of French West Africa, and uh, we can see that holding up into the uh, independence uh, period as well, Uh, the sort of uh, uh, familiarities and and routes that continue to be followed. Dakar, for example, which is going to become home to the first university um, in uh, French Africa uh, in 1957. Dakar still draws students from across the region into the 1960s and 1970s. So some of this, this familiarity and these interlocking systems of education hold up uh, into the post-war, post-independence period as well.
1: Thank you for all the erudition you invested in this book and for your eloquent and generous answers in the course of this dialogue today. Thanks again, Ari. To our listeners, I'm your host, Ari Barbalat, on the New Books Network's New Books in African Studies channel. Today, I've been in dialogue with Dr. Harry Gamble. He is professor of French and Francophone studies at the College of Worcester. We have been discussing his new book, Contesting French West Africa, Battles Over Schools and the Colonial Order, 1900 to 1950. Published in Lincoln, Nebraska by University of Nebraska Press 2017. Thank you very much.